Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, again this morning. I'm going to read from uh, verse 12 and read down through verse 15. And then I've asked uh, Tim uh, Freitag if he would pray for the ministry of the Word. Mark 1, verse 12. Um, Probably should start at verse 10, so you get the full context. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered here together this morning as a body seeking to be fed from your word. Father, we ask that you would strengthen your servant to deliver that word to your people. That we may hear, as it were, your own voice coming to us from the scriptures through your servant as he preaches this morning. And Father, we have a simple request that we may know more of your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. That our hearts may be bound more closely to his that our lives may be modeled on our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we bring this before you. Amen. Amen. This week I just finished reading a book called Hidden Figures. It was a story of the days... Uh, the Langley Research Facility in Virginia that became later the first facility of NASA. In the days when computers were not a machine, they were people. The story of the women, the African Americans, then called colored women, were equivalent to the engineers and the scientists, and yet they were paid about a fourth as much they were the ones who did the computations. They were the computers. And that's what they were called. And the book takes us through the lives of about 150 to 200 different women who not only opened the way for colored people, the African Americans, but for women in general, moving up in the world of science and engineering. I've also seen the movie called Hidden Figures, which is about those women, particularly three of those women, and the work that they did in the space program, particularly the Mercury program, getting our first men into space. And it tells the story particularly of one woman, Katherine uh, Johnson, who was the computer who determined the orbital trajectory that 
John Glenn's capsule had to go in order to get into space, make three revolutions, and return safely to Earth. And it was true that John Glenn himself did not trust IBM and its machine to have the answers. He said, I want the girl to do it. I want her to crunch the numbers. And she did, and of course, he made history being the first American to orbit the Earth. But the producers, the screenwriters of the movie chose to take what was a larger story and bring to us only a portion of that story, zeroing in on a very short period of time. There is a lot more background of their struggles as colored people and the, the fact that they were in a facility that was the most desegregated section of the United States and yet living in a very segregated society even as they went back to their own homes, going to places where colored people were not permitted. So the producer chose to focus on one small area and not all the other details to try to get us to see that one episode. And I think that's what we have in similar thing going on in this passage here. Because we look and we read where, where Mark writes, he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. And after John is arrested, he starts to preach. And if you read the other gospels, that whole period of time between the time that he came up out of the water after his baptism and being impelled, Mark says, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness until John is arrested is a year and a half. And Mark just has two sentences. And one of my challenges in preaching from Mark is to not preach John or to preach Matthew or Luke. What is Mark focusing on? It is as if his executive producer, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, has said, you as the screenwriter, this is what I want you to focus on. Don't lose sight of Mark's title, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is taking this larger picture and focusing, not denigrating or forgetting about the rest of the things, but it's one of the beauties of having the harmony of the scriptures, the, the synoptic gospel, so that we can truly see all of that, and yet we can't lose sight of what Mark would have us focus on. We know the purpose of Jesus' temptation, or at least part of that answer, is given to us by the writer to the Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. There is that beauty and that really necessary thing for us to get out of the other Gospels, the, the whole temptation of Christ. Christ in his humanity, Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit facing Satan and facing the dangers, the wild beasts, and being ministered to by angels. There, there is 
that part, I think that we as Christians, we, we tend to think that, that we, we tend to forget Jesus in his humanity and his walk on this earth as the Son of Man. But Mark's focus, again, I believe, is that, yes, he, he doesn't, again, leave that out, but his focus and his purpose is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the Son of Man, but he is also the Son of God. And so he very simply walks us through a couple of sentences here to cover that period of time and says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. He's focusing on Jesus coming as a herald of the good news that God had sent to men. And again, where did the time go? We have this year and a half. And John is the only one of the gospel writers who really fills in that time. That, that we, we have famous things that, that you would remember. The wedding at Cana where he turns the water into wine. The literally turning the tables on the money changers in the temple in Jerusalem. And then he has the secret meeting with Nicodemus. And then as he's in Jerusalem, he hears that the Pharisees kind of notice that Jesus is gathering more disciples than John the Baptist is, and his disciples are baptizing more than John the Baptist is, and for some reason that causes Jesus to head to Galilee. And we know that he had to walk either around or he had the option of going through Samaria where he met a racial minority, a Samaritan, oh, who was also a woman. Talk about segregation. It was there in Judea in the time. And then he goes to Galilee. And he was evidently well received in Galilee. I look at that time, that year and a half, those events, the wedding, and, and meeting with, the, with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And, and what we see, I think, and I, I don't mean to, to be crass or anything, but there is that period of time where, where I think the collective stories, people come across as saying, who is this guy? Who, who is this man? And where did he come from? Re remember what the... Pharisees actually said, you know, does, does anybody know a prophet who came from, from Galilee? And yet Jesus was received in Galilee. John tells us that they saw all the things that he did in Jerusalem and this attracted them. But if Jesus was really wanting publicity, if he was really wanting notoriety, he wouldn't have gone to Galilee. He would have stayed in Jerusalem. And again, we know from the scriptures that many people were saying, uh, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are we going to see you sitting on the throne as king? But he transferred his main ministry activities, the, the main ministry that he's going to do, his speaking and teaching and miracles, he starts in Galilee. The gospel, I believe, is being presented to us in a new dimension. 
Yes, John's gospel was repent. And Jesus' gospel is repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom. And yet we have this, this phrase that I've, I've always stumbled with and had a hard time dealing with when Jesus said, and we talked a little bit about it in our Sunday school class, the time is fulfilled. You know, what, what does that mean? I can remember being uh, in the seminary class, and for one of the assignments, we had to write a paper on why did Jesus come when he did? Why was he born in Bethlehem on that day in that time in history? And I spent 10 pages, Times New Roman, 12-point font, double space, doing all the Chicago Manual of Style footnotes, saying as eloquently as I could, I don't know. <laughs> if it were up to me, he would not have been born then. Wait until the internet. Wait until everybody is looking at these little gadgets and not where they're walking. If you wanted to announce it to the maximum number of people, why then? And we, I think we have the same kind of thing. I'm looking at this going, the fullness of time. Well, what was full and what does he mean by the time? And further complicating that, when I read in Paul the fullness of time, he uses the word chronos, which you would get chronology, right? Time, the days, and he says the time is fulfilled when God sent forth his son. Oh, okay, the days, you know, God determined this is the day. God would send forth his son. But Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word kairos, which means a season. And he's, it's like a, a bowl, and there are certain days that go into that bowl until it's full, and when it's full, it remains full. And Jesus is saying, the, the season has ended, and, and now is the time to announce the kingdom is at hand. This is the day. This is the time. The season has come. It has fully arrived that the good news of the kingdom can be fully announced. Again, remember Mark's purpose, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was the time and this was the place where he was to announce what John told us to be watching out for. He told the people, after me comes one who is mightier than I. And Jesus is saying, I am now here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But why Galilee? Again, I would have the same, you know, why Galilee? Palestine was divided into basically three regions. Its southern region, Judea, in the middle, Samaria, and above that, in the northern area of Palestine, was this place called Galilee. And we know that Isaiah tells us that this would be the place. I've read it, but I'll read it again because I think it's important to hear 
that Isaiah got it right. This was the area where several of the tribes, Dan and Asher and Naphtali and Zebulun, the territory that was given to them when the land was divided, but he says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, Galilee of the Gentiles didn't even have that name then. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah, many centuries before, tells us this is what they were to look for. It would come from the land of Galilee. But again, I, the question is, why? Why Galilee? The scriptures say God would raise up the son of David, and he would restore the glory of the nations. And he, he began with the restoration of the, the people of Israel from their exile, moving back into the land. 536 B.C., I think it is. But full restoration had to wait, had to wait for the coming of Christ. John Calvin wrote, the commencement of this light, and as we might say, the dawn, was the return of the people from Babylon. At length, Christ, the Son of Righteousness, in full splendor and by his coming, utterly abolished the darkness of death. Jesus is ministering in the north, and he is coming with the message of the kingdom. He's bringing light to a dark land. He must be the long-awaited Messiah who is coming to restore his people. But Galilee, why Galilee? Why not in Jerusalem? Why not in a place that was more populous where the teachers of the law were present? Why Galilee? In Joshua, the book of Joshua, we are told that Hiram, the king of Tyre, helped Solomon by cutting down the, the trees that were readily available, the timber that was available in his land, and, and donated it to Solomon to build uh, his, his home and the, the temple. And they, they brought shipload after shipload into, uh, to be shipped across the country, I guess, into, from Lebanon to Jerusalem. And as a thank you gift, Solomon gives 20 cities of this northern region to King Hiram. And the New American Standard, I think, is a little stodgy on this. When, when Hiram looked at these 20 towns on these little donkey paths in, in this kind of mountainous area with, you know, fruit trees and stuff around, um, it says... They did, it did not please him. In a more modern vernacular, and some of you teenagers, you know, I may not get this quite right because I'm an old grandpa anyway, but I think when King Hiram takes a look at these 20 cities, his response was, meh. <laughs> it, 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 they did not impress him. He, 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 he actually says, this is a land of Kabul which means they're as good as nothing. 
And, and the Jews named it Galil, which we now pronounce as Galilee. This was what this area was like. It, it, it was a very fertile area, but it was way off the beaten path. It was very rural. And we can kind of get some picture why Christ might have wanted this area because of the illustrations, the sheep and the planting of seed and the trees, you know, the good fruit and the bad fruit and all of it because it was plentiful. One man in the 1880s wrote a book. Uh, this man is named Selah Merrill, uh, wrote a book called Galilee in the Time of Christ. And he says, Quote, such is the fertility of the soil that it rejects no plant, for the air is so genial that it suits every variety. And that's why we can hear in the parables Jesus talking about trees like hardwood trees. Apparently walnut grows very well there, but the palm tree also grows. So you have a deciduous tree that grows in fairly cool temperatures and one that needs more tropical temperatures, and they thrive in the same environment. Of course, we know olives, grapes, pomegranates were very plentiful here, wheat fields. So again, we can kind of see, yeah, okay, now his illustrations will really work here. But again, nobody expected a prophet to come. The Pharisees, you know, got it wrong. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And yet, the historians tell us that Jonah... Elijah, Elisha, and probably Hosea came from the region of Galilee. So I don't know what the Pharisees were reading, but they misread it, okay? But now modern scholars have begun to look at Galilee again. An associate professor of New Testament history at Harvard Divinity School, uh, Alan Callahan, writes this. While often portrayed as a bucolic backwater, Galilee was known for political unrest, banditry, and tax revolts. He, he says, imagine Berkeley, California in the 1960s. That was Galilee in the time of Christ. Not only social dissent, he says, but economic protest rising out of what is called social banditry. And what does he mean? Well, apparently there were fanatics, religious fanatics, who would start to gather a following and make themselves out to be the Messiah and one worthy to be followed. And they would go out into the wilderness of Galilee and he would gather these and they would begin to devise a revolt against the authorities. And what normally happened was the Roman thought police would get word that there's a band of crazies out there. You know, maybe Galilee should have been named Granola, the land of fruits, nuts, and flakes. <laughs> and they would go out and they would put down the revolutionists, sometimes with just disbanding, sometimes executing them on the spot. To be a Galilean, he says, took on a coloration of being rebellious, an insurrectionist, or an outsider, or at least someone who's not really old Jew of the traditional sort. Galileans were recognized. Remember when Peter was on the night in Jesus, when Jesus was betrayed, he kind of hung around, you know, kind of 
leaning against the corner of the building, but really wanted to put his hands to warm in the fire. And the maid recognized him, right? As, um, you're with that guy, aren't you? You're with Jesus. And he denies it, and finally someone said to him, you're a Galilean. I, I know you. You are a Galilean. They recognized that Peter was a Galilean. It still happens in our day, right? You can't really deny who you are and where you're from. You know, when I, when I worked in, as an engineer, I traveled to Nova Scotia quite often. And I would go in to a restaurant and sit down, and the server would say, what would you like to drink with dinner? And I would say, I'll have a sweet tea. And she would go, you're from South Carolina, eh? <laughs> she recognized, you know, the only people who order sweet tea in here, you know, I know where you're from. And a Galilean had that kind of, you know, people recognize them. And Callahan makes an argument, and I don't know that I could trace this out. But he says, I could trace a line from the historical moment that's depicted in the book of Judges, the cycle of Elijah to the first kings, to this talk, he says, about king making and king breaking, all the way down to the line of Jesus. He says, I can see that kind of thing, the revolutionaries, the king making, the king breaking, these kinds of things, they came out of Galilee. And yet that's where Jesus, one that maybe many people looked at him, what a fanatic, this religious nut, thinks he's the Messiah, gathering his followers. And that's why we can see in the Gospels, not only the religious authorities, but the Romans began to keep an eye on him. And yet, the, his announcement, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, the kingdom, I think we can look at it in two ways. The kingdom that belongs to God, it is his, but also the kingdom which God rules. He is the king over his own kingdom, where his authority, his power, his grace rule. To earthly kings, they're, they're nothing without their kingdom. And we've been watching that, that film on Victoria. And the Spanish king loses his kingdom, and he is nothing. He's, he's just treated like a commoner. commoner. He, he is nothing without his kingdom, but God makes his own kingdom. And Jesus says, the kingdom which belongs to God, of which God rules, is at hand. His kingdom has come with power and grace. Why? Why can he say it is at hand? Because the king is at hand. The king is near. The king is there. By the revelation of himself and by his completion of the work of redemption, he stands forth as the king of salvation, the king of his children. And we, his children, are partakers of his kingdom. Jesus came to announce, I am the king of kings and lord of lords. The Old Testament looks back at the coming of the kingdom. 
And now we await, I believe, after we have seen the kingdom coming, do we not pray, thy kingdom come? There is that now and not yet. There is a day when that kingdom will be perfectly fulfilled. Peter looks forward to that and he says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling. In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom will be supplied to you. Jesus was there and he could say, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near because the king himself was near. And yet, what is his message? He does not uh, disagree with John. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what we see over and over and over in the scriptures, repentance and faith always go hand in hand. We do not have repentance, and, and many people do. They, they repent, but their repentance is remorse. I wish I hadn't done that. Or regret. I wish I wasn't like that, but it is not biblical repentance. The, the word itself simply means changing of the mind. There is a change of the condition and your, your inner soul, your inner heart in reference to sin. Logically, repentance precedes faith. That's kind of how we conceive of it. But in reality, to the Lord, they, they come together. Logically, to us, we can think of it as the soil must be prepared before we put the seed in. Or the scriptures use the word foundation. You know, a solid foundation must be built before you build the structure upon it. Repentance is that foundation. We, the writer to the Hebrews is, is speaking to them and he says, you know, you, you need to understand this. You, you need to not be elementary in your thinking. He says, and not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That foundation, that repentance that he speaks of here in Hebrews and in, in Jesus is once and for all. That foundation must be laid and then the life of faith built upon it. And yet again, they go together. It's the first principle of the gospel. It's the universal teaching of the New Testament. Repentance and faith are always found together. And yet that repentance has elements. And, and even Paul, in speaking of repentance, that ongoing repentance in our lives, he, he says repentance, and then he uses the phrase, sorrow according to the will of God. See, it's, it's not from us. We do not repent of our own selves. It, it, it is a gift of God. In, in Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter speaks of this, um, and I, I believe this is the language in chapter 5, verse 31, he is uh, speaking um, with his apostle, the other apostles, and he's saying, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and as savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a mercy of God. 
Repentance comes not from us, but from him. And yet Jesus expects of his followers faith. In John chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. There is an expectation in Christ. Repentance would be followed immediately by faith. And we think of faith as, as knowledge and assent, and, and yet it's more than knowledge. It, it's acknowledgement, as one writer puts it. An acknowledgement or conviction of the revelation that I need salvation and Christ is the only Savior. See, just understanding, well, Jesus was preaching this, and that's what Jesus was like. That's not assent. That is not acknowledgement. That is not acting. And again, it's similar to being, you know, we can have remorse without repentance. But we can have a kind of knowledge without acknowledgement. And it's more than assent. It's more just saying, yeah, that's right. It's an attachment in that ascent. It's giving myself to the communion of the saints. It's participating in the gospel as a member of the body of Christ. It is something that is whole to me. Not a part of me, but my whole. And it's followed by a confidence, a full trust, a certainty, a reliance, a sure hope in God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says, believe in the gospel. And I think sometimes we say, well, I, I can recite what I think the gospel is, and I can memorize a list of things, but that's not what the, I think the in means here. It means in the sphere of the gospel. Believe in, using the language that I understand, under the influence. Believe in the, under the power and influence of the gospel. When Jesus preached to men, he placed them in the gospel. He placed them so that they would be surrounded by the gospel, surrounded so as they were pierced to their heart and their soul, that their minds were constrained by the power of the gospel to which they would believe. Not only that they would believe it, not only that they would know it, not only that they would acknowledge it, but they would walk in it. <coughs> Repent, he says, and believe in the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what he came to do and preach. This is the beginning in Galilee of where that message would radiate from there this backwater of Palestine to the nation and to the nations of the entire world. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul exhorts us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask again that you would impress these things on our hearts and minds. Cause us to meditate upon them, to see that these things are true, to be as we 
have understood from the Scriptures today that, that we would be those who would be workmen with the Scriptures to, to read and to study and to try to understand and yet not only to, to know this but to walk in it, to believe and to walk in a manner that pleases you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You please rise for the benediction. This is from, again, the pen of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Amen.